We'll uh, move on now to the reading and proclaiming of God's Word. My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to wish you a Happy New Year. And of course, this is still the Christmas season. And uh, we have another familiar Christmas passage before us this morning. The wise men visiting baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Now, in the interest of trying to hear this passage in a fresh way, let me start by bursting some of our Christmas bubbles. Right? These, these wise men weren't kings. There weren't three of them. And they weren't there the night the shepherds showed up when Jesus was newly born. Right? So we need to take that image out of our mind. The, the wise men weren't there with the shepherds that first night, okay? So start there. Let's now follow along as I read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word, and we ask that you would help us now to hear it in faith uh, by the power and with the help of your Spirit, Holy Spirit, please be present now. And please take these words, take the gospel, take Jesus and plant him in us. That we might know him, that we might trust him, that we might love him. And that we might be conformed to his image. Do this now in our hearing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm, I know I've mentioned before, but I'll mention again that when I was in high school, I was on a, a school district exchange program with a school district in Russia, about 150 miles northeast of Moscow. And I went uh, the summer between my junior and senior year for a month. And uh, we were going to be living with Russian families in their little Soviet apartment blocks. And uh, one of the primary things we were told to prepare for was gift-giving, Gift exchanging. As American visitors, you're going to receive a lot of gifts from various Russian hosts and families. And as American visitors, you need to bestow a lot of gifts. So our luggage was overflowing with trinkets and all kinds of things we could give to various Russians. 
It was a great trip, learned a ton, saw amazing things. It was very enriching for me, even to this very day. But what if all we did was fly halfway around the world, got off the plane, got on the bus, got to our little village, we had a brief ceremony, we gave away all these gifts we packed, and then we said goodbye. And we got back on the bus, went back to Moscow, got on the plane, and went home. All that just to deliver some gifts. It would have been absurd. And that's how this passage can sound to modern ears. These wise men travel a thousand miles over land. It's not an easy trip to deliver gifts to a newborn peasant baby. Because they saw something. They experienced something that convinced them this child was special. This child was worth the journey and the gifts. The Christian claim is that Jesus is worth it. He is worth our greatest treasure. Can we see and experience what these wise men saw? We're going to look at this passage under three headings. And the first is this. Jesus is the King of the Jews. Verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. All right, so first of all, who were these wise men? In the text, they're called magi. That's how they were known uh, at this time in the first century in the Mediterranean world. They were advisors, uh, originally in the, in the court of Persian monarchs. They were priests and diviners. They were experts in astronomy and astrology. Uh, they had to master the most advanced math of their day in order to plot the movement of planets and stars. They were widely respected throughout the Roman Empire and east of the Roman Empire. They were thought of as the smartest guys in the room. But they were not kings. Here, they're looking for a king. They ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And this word king, I don't know if you noticed, it keeps coming up in this passage. right? It's meant to be asking, who is the real king? Juxtaposing Jesus and Herod. Who is the real king of the Jews? Now, Herod is technically called king of the Jews, but Herod was not a full-blooded Israelite. He was not descended from King David. Herod got the title king as a favor from Caesar Augustus. Rome was the true power in Israel. Herod did build the second temple in Jerusalem. It was magnificent. It's considered one of the uh, wonders of the ancient world, but because he wasn't 100% Israelite, He couldn't even go inside. He couldn't go inside this temple he built. So Herod was always going to feel like his position was precarious. And here we are. This is sort of at the end of his life, at the end of his reign. And in verse 2, they say, we saw his star. The Magi saw his star. What did they see? Well, we're not sure. There are uh, a few different candidates. In the winter of 5 to 4 BC, uh, we know that Chinese observers record what we assume uh, to have been a supernova that was visible for about 70 days. Another candidate is in the fall of 7 BC. Jupiter and Saturn converged in the night sky to look like a mega planet in the constellation Pisces. An observer in Mesopotamia might have concluded that a king had been born a king of the Western world who will be their king for the last days. 
More recently, a case has been made that this was a comet and that the language used to describe this star and its movement was technical language used of comets of the day. But we know that the, the way the text is written, this star, whatever it is, appears to move, it appears and then reappears, it even leads them to a specific house. So it might be something completely supernatural. Remember, God led his people using a pillar of fire, right? God can do whatever he wants. Either way, God is speaking here in a way that these Gentiles, these magi, could understand. They saw something, but why would they call it his star? Well, there's an ancient prophecy that a king of the whole world would come from the Jews. In the first century, various people in the Mediterranean were familiar with this hint or rumor. And we find the original promise in the book of Numbers in chapter 24, uh, the fourth book of the Bible. The Israelites had been freed from slavery in Egypt. They wandered 40 years in the wilderness. And here they are on the border of the promised land on the plains of Moab. And the king of Moab, Balak, hired, who was really an early magi, Balaam, to pronounce a curse over Israel. But every time Balaam went to curse Israel, he blessed them instead. He couldn't help himself. And in the final blessing, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So a great ruler coming out of Israel was associated with an astrological sign. And in fact, the last and greatest uprising of the Jews against the Romans in the second century, the leader of that uprising was called Son of the Star, referring to this prophecy. So the sign of Numbers 24 was seen by these magi. This is what they're referring to. And Herod knows. Herod knows what they're asking. They're not simply asking, well, where is the next king of Israel? Where has he been born? They're asking about this prophesied king, which is why when Herod gathers the priests and the scribes, he asks, where is the Messiah to be born? The Christ. And those scholars he gathers, they quote the book of Micah, the prophet. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So the Magi head to Bethlehem. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now these three gifts, they're not necessarily prophetic in any way, talking about who Jesus is going to be. These are just typical high-value gifts at the time. And this is connected to a promise from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 60, where he writes, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's where the tradition that these were kings comes from. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So, for people who are keeping score, if you started reading in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, there's been a very special birth in Bethlehem to a son of the line of David. The Messiah's star has risen from Numbers 24, and foreign dignitaries have come to bring him gifts as promised in Isaiah 60. Jesus is being presented as the real and final king of the Jews. In contrast to Herod, Jesus 
is the true king of the Jews. Well, so what? Why does it matter that Jesus is king of the Jews? Well, it matters for lots of reasons. But for one, it means we cannot make him into the figure we want him to be. We cannot craft Jesus in our own image. Jesus is not a socialist revolutionary. Jesus is not a 2A small government militia member. Jesus is a true historical figure of flesh and blood. He comes out of first century Israel. His life fulfills and answers the various promises and prophecies made to, his, made to Israel in history over many centuries. The meaning of Jesus is found first in the Old Testament, not in what you think is important. We cannot make Jesus in our own image. And if you're looking to Jesus for salvation, then it's not a salvation that you're in charge of or you define. This salvation isn't merely internal or spiritual, as if all that matters is what goes on inside of you or me. Jesus' salvation is physical, temporal, material. He brings real forgiveness for your real sins, real mercy for your real deserved judgment. His birth was bloody and so was his death. And he went through it all to save us. And that salvation includes resurrected bodies, a restored and renewed earth, nations coming together in peace, an end to violence and sin. This is what God promised the king of the Jews would do. This is who Jesus is. And he is the king we need. Not a king and rule of our own making, of our own imagination, but of God's. And if the true king of Israel brings salvation, then he's not just the king of the Jews. He's also the king of the cosmos. A second point. Jesus is king of the cosmos. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And like I said, we can't be sure what the Magi saw in the sky, whether it was natural or supernatural. Something astrological was going on, something extraterrestrial. And this meant that Jesus was no mere earthly king. He was a king who was written in the stars. Here's the point. When we look up at the night sky, and it's clear enough and there isn't so much light pollution, right? It's, it's amazing. It's, it's like when we look out at the ocean, we are in awe of the beauty and the vastness, the expanse of the physical world, right? It's, it's humbling and it's moving. We love it. But that's not how the ancients experienced the night sky. When they looked up at the stars, they saw omens and forces they could not control. They lived in fear of the stars and planets, the powers that existed far beyond their world and influence. Now, you think about it, in a completely chaotic and confusing world, right, like the ancient world, they didn't understand what was going on. These heavenly bodies never changed. They kept their course year after year. They were the only things that were fixed and dependable in an ever-shifting and moving world. They must be the anchor of reality, it was thought. And they affected everything. Your character, your success, your health, the date and mode of your death, everything. The stars and planets were your fate. 
far more powerful than Zeus and Athena. In the ancient world, the Greco-Roman gods and goddesses were no match for the stars. Astrology and astronomy were far more important. And even now, the stars continue, can continue to be seen as signs of fate. We have it in our language, right? It's not in the stars. Thank your lucky stars. Star-crossed lovers, right? The stars are fixed. You don't, you can't affect and change the stars. They change you. And that's still the case in some places today. I had a, a co-worker years ago who was uh, born in India to a Hindu family. When she was born, her parents brought her to the local Brahmin, and he told them that due to the various astrological signs, her birth was cursed. And if they brought her into their home, she would bring that curse into their home. So they needed to throw her into the river and drown her. Her parents couldn't do that. But they also couldn't bring her into their home because they feared this curse. So they dropped her off at a nearby Anglican church. And she was raised there. Made her way here to the U.S. eventually. But this is how things worked 2,000 years ago. The stars and planets were fate. Now imagine, these magi, they were fatalists, right? At least to a degree. They knew better than anyone else how fixed the stars and the planets were. They bought in to, the, to their power. So they might be the last people to believe in a personal, sovereign deity, a God of grace and mercy who had feelings and a will. Yet here they are paying homage to Jesus. And, and Jesus can't even help them, right? I mean, he's a baby. They'll, they'll likely be dead before he's an adult. What are they doing there? It's interesting. We read in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And it's, it's very strange Greek construction. This might actually be more like an idiom, like they jumped out of their skin for joy. They must have seen something that shook their worldview, something that broke their fine-tuned calculations, maybe made them question everything. But you think about it, these, these powers in the night sky, in this moment in history, they are proclaiming Christ. The greatest, most respected adherents of astronomy are bowing to Jesus in homage because of what the sky is proclaiming. Jesus alters the unalterable. He is master of the universe. He's king of the cosmos. That's what the Magi seem to understand. <clears throat> Excuse me. You might say, well, Bob, I don't worry about the stars. They don't hold my fate. But we all have stars and astrology, things that we are simply subject to, or that's how we feel. What are your planets and stars and astrology? Right? Things that we believe we are subject to, forces and powers that are unalterable, that determine our lives. What are they for you? Your past, your appetites, your addictions, the economy, the stock market, your sexuality, the justice system, politics. Right? It could be anything. Things that seem unmovable, too big, determining your fate. Jesus shows up in the stars. You think your habits can't change? Try changing the stars and planets. 
That's what Jesus does. He shows up there and he proves his lordship. And he does the same thing in your life as well. See, as a, if you are a Christian, you can think of Jesus as Savior, but maybe not see Jesus as King of the cosmos. Right? Maybe Jesus is King of my marriage, but not the King of my office. Maybe the king of my conscience, but not the king of my neighborhood. Maybe the king of my past, but not the king of my future. The king of my Sundays, but not the king of my time on the internet. The king of my shopping, but not my 401k, right? It can feel to us like there are things that can be changed and influenced, and then there are things that cannot. These are just the harsh, brute facts of life. This is just reality. There's nothing we can do about them. It's not true. Not with Jesus. He alters the unalterable. So ask him to. And keep asking. Bring him to the places and the areas of your life that you are a fatalist about. Bring his word, his worship, his people, his connection with you to these places. They are not the fixed reality. Jesus is. Jesus shows up where he shouldn't be. He shows up in the sky. He gets fatalists to come and bow to him. He is the king of the cosmos. There is nothing, no power or force that is fixed or beyond his lordship. So because he's the king of the Jews and the king of the cosmos, he is a king worthy of our treasure. Third point, he's the king worthy of our treasure. Verse 3, when, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. These foreign dignitaries come to Jerusalem. They're talking about a special sign they saw in the sky that a king has been born. Wouldn't you at least be interested in, in checking it out, right? Wouldn't you go to Bethlehem perhaps out of just sheer curiosity? Well, not if you want to cling to what you have. Not if you're afraid of what you might find. See, Herod knows he's not the Messiah. Why not check it out? Because the only thing Jesus can do is threaten Herod's kingdom and rule. No matter what, he is only interested in maintaining power, and he'll do whatever it takes to keep it. Verse 7 and 8, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Well, we know that Herod wasn't interested in worshiping baby Jesus. He had plans to kill him if this story turned out to be true. We know from history that Herod was brutal. He was scary crazy. He killed three sons. Two of them were his favorite. He killed his favorite wife, right, because he believed they were plotting against him. He had plans that on the day of his death, his officials were to gather together the sons and the nobility in Israel and slaughter them so that there would be weeping in Israel on the day of his death. So it's totally consistent with his character to kill a handful of babies two years and under around Bethlehem, which is what the Bible records he did. Herod was scary and brutal. What about the Jerusalem elite, right? The, the, the people that Herod calls, where is the Messiah to be born? Well, it's the same thing. Some of them clearly know the scripture, right? Bethlehem. But they won't go. Why? Well, maybe they're afraid of Herod. Maybe they're afraid of looking like an idiot. Maybe they're afraid of losing status, 
Right? As you read the Gospels, you get the idea that the elite weren't really looking for the Messiah. They really weren't waiting for him. They didn't care. That, that's the problem with being elite and powerful. Jesus the King threatens our kingdoms. We can't have both. If you have a kingdom, Jesus threatens it. We are either serving our kingdom or his well, see, these magi come. They, they are privileged. They are educated. They have status and wealth. They have a quote-unquote kingdom. They don't need to come to Jesus, but they spend valuable resources, time and money to get there. And they risk their lives to do it, right? They announce to a bloodthirsty king that another king has been born in their territory, and he's there. they're there to pay homage to him. That could easily get you killed. Herod would not think twice about killing you if that's what you're describing. And we read in verse 12 that they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Their lives were in danger. So they risked their lives to get to this baby boy. They give valuable gifts to Jesus and then they just go home. They receive nothing in return as far as we can tell except danger. Why? Well, the Magi thought this. The king who brings salvation, the king who rules over all the powers and forces in the universe, this is the king we want. This is the king worth worshiping. This is the king worthy of our treasure. So what is it that you treasure? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Right? Your heart is where your treasure is. Your, your heart is your kingdom. Your treasure is your kingdom. What is it? Is it your leisure, your routine, your physical fitness, your beauty, your reputation, your family, your career, your retirement plan, your relative righteousness? Because Jesus is the king of the Jews and the king of the cosmos, he is worthy of our treasure. He is our treasure. So these lesser treasures can be used and spent for him and his kingdom. And I'm not really talking about giving money to the church today. Uh, for some of us, the easiest thing to do is to write a big check. Right? Money isn't always our greatest treasure. Feel free to write a big check if you want. Right? But the point is to bring our treasure to Jesus. And you know I love to say that for many of us around here, time is far more valuable than money. What is your treasure? What do you treasure? Whenever you do something in Jesus' name, like caring for the world, proclaiming the truth, doing something that cares for even the least in his kingdom, right? you are offering up and sacrificing your treasure to do so. You are, like the Magi, bowing before him and bringing him glory. And you might say, well, Bob, I don't really have any treasure, I never had a chance or the opportunity was taken from me. We all have treasure. Maybe your treasure is your sadness, your bitterness. Maybe it's resentment, even victimhood. Whatever you stoke, whatever you tend to, whatever you pay attention to and nurse, that's your treasure. Right? We are taking care of something. We are keeping something alive. That's your treasure. You say, well, Jesus doesn't want that. Well, actually, in a sense, he does. Can you give that to him, right? 
we struggle to give him that. Can you love your enemies? Can you love the people who have disappointed you? Can you give to the people who have only taken from you? Can you forgive the people who don't deserve it? This is what Jesus is always talking about in the Gospels. Can you give time to the people who are only going to waste it? Favors to the people who can never repay them. Kindness to the people who don't notice it. Grace to the people who are only going to take advantage of it. Do you understand that that describes exactly who Jesus is with us? He gives us his time, favor, kindness, grace, his life. And we so often treat it as nothing. He gave all of his treasure, all of his life for our sake. He's given us his treasure, so give him yours. Herod is the archetype of a human king. Right? He will kill whoever he needs to to remain in power, even family he loves. He'll kill them to keep power. Jesus is just the opposite. He will die for the least in his kingdom. For the least. That's what a true king does. The true king of the Jews, the true king of the cosmos, He will alter the stars. He will reverse death. He will take our sin upon his back. All for the least, for us. He's worthy of our treasure. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word uh, that you've given us about Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to see him uh, as the king of the Jews, the king of the cosmos, as the king who is worthy of all of our treasure. Everything we have is yours. And and I pray that you would teach us to offer it all back up to you in worship. We're grateful that Jesus came to us and made us his treasure. And he gave up himself. Help us to give up ourselves. Help us to give up our lives that we might receive them back from him. Help us to faithfully, courageously proclaim this truth. That Jesus is the king. The king that our world needs. And help us to live as his faithful subjects. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.